So, sadly, we've, we've reached the end of Paul's list here of the Spirit's fruit. And uh, I say sadly because I, I personally have benefited very much from pausing to look at these one by one each week. I, I hope you have as well. Um, and the Apostle certainly knows how to end things with a bang. Probably none of these fruits is likely to hit us right between the eyes like this fruit of self-control. It's certainly unique among the nine. First of all, because it's, it's somewhat difficult to find its source in God. Secondly, it, it, its presence has a restraining nature about it, but its absence is a direct result of the kind of sins we find listed in verses 19 through 21. Now the works of the, law, uh, the, works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Those things happen because self-control does not. This fruit certainly underscores what was sorely lacking lacking in in these Galatian churches whose reputation had become one of biting and devouring one another. Hardly self-control. Now, this this word self-control shows up 12 times in our ESV, 11 of those times in the New Testament. And they represent three different Greek words. One of them having more to do with soberness or soundness of mind. Um, Those uses are found found in that familiar passage in 1 Timothy 2 where Paul is is specifically addressing women. But he also uses it in his second letter to Timothy, Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.7, where he says, God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of but of love and of, of power and of love and of self-control. The KJV uses the phrase there of a sober mind rather than self-control in that passage, which is probably the better translation of that particular Greek word. However, all the other times that we encounter self-control in our Bibles, it's conveying exactly what we would expect it to be conveying. Exactly what you think about when you think about self-control. The mastery of self and self's desires and passions. The exercise of self-restraint. Having control over one's emotions and thoughts and actions. Now, as I said, one of the unique things about that, this fruit is that it's not exactly clear how this is a characteristic of God for us to behold, at least, at least it's not from the surface. You recall as we've moved along here, I've, I've reminded us time and time again, we, be, we become as we behold. That is, these fruits become a growing manifest reality in our lives as we behold the very source of each one of these fruits. 
God Himself. We're talking about the character of God displayed in these fruits. But how does that work with self-control? I mean, how is it that God has self-control? I mean, if I was, without even giving a definition, the mere term self-control suggests that there's, there's a battle being waged within self, right? That needs to be controlled. There's this force that needs to be restrained. That if not, it will lead to the kind of unrighteous behavior that we just read in verses 19 through 21. Now that can't be true of God, can it? Well, this touches on the theological category that speaks of God's self-existence. The term called a seity or, or self-sufficiency, if you will. As it relates to self-control, you see, God, God possesses the greatest freedom of anyone and anything in the universe. God has freedom to choose among all the possible possibilities that we could ever imagine and beyond. Yet, in His choices, He must do that which reflects His immutable character. Or He would not be immutable, which means He, he doesn't change. God doesn't change. God must always act within the realm of His character. So in that sense, His self and all that He is, is control, it controls all that He does. For example, it would be impossible for God to lie. Right? Why? Why, why would it be impossible for God to, to lie? It's against His own character, right? He always acts within the bounds of His character. And in that sense, He demonstrates to us self-control. Not in the way that we must, because He does not have this opposing force within Himself like we do. But just like all, all of His purposes, all of His actions, all of His responses... They're constrained by His character. And just like that so for God, so we possessing His Spirit are to bring all our purposes and all our actions and all our responses in complete conformance to Him. Moreover though, by, by God becoming a man like we heard in the first hour, by, by taking upon Himself humanity, in the person of Jesus Christ, the Lord actually engaged in controlling all His desires and all His passions that rose up in Him by subjecting them 100% to the Father. When He was fasting in the wilderness and His body grew hungry and His body was telling Him it's time to eat and you can be assured in 40 days of fasting your body's telling you that. It would, the body was screaming, feed me. Jesus exercised self-control in subjecting His body in obedience to the observed fast. Same with Gethsemane. He's wrestling with prayer. That whole wrestle with prayer is suggesting Jesus considering, asking for a different route or different route. Yet He brought Himself into subjection to His Father's will. 
That required self-control. Even, even, brethren, even his anger expressed in the temple. All of that was purposed, planned, and measured out in complete control of himself. He wasn't some out-of-control maniac. And so again, it's still in this beholding of the Christ that we in turn take on His ability to control ourselves. We ourselves are enabled to exercise self-control in our lives. Yes, ours is different in that we, we have an element that Jesus did not contend with. Jesus certainly contended with human weakness, and I think He did to a greater extent than we probably realize. However, He did not have this inward sin that He needed to counteract and put to death like we do. He didn't have to contend with these verses, these, these sins in Galatians verses 19-21. through 21, Sins that are a direct result from runaway desires and passions that have been left unchecked. As I said, sexual immorality, idolatry, strife, fits of anger, drunkenness, and things like these, they happen because self-control does not happen. You know what these sins say? They say, this is good. And I want more of it. They say, just, just one more time. Just one more taste. One more look. One more rush. One more vent. One more pleasure. One, just, just, just one more. Just one more. They openly declare that self has run amok in your life. But before we go any further, I think it's important to point out that self-control is not, is not a Christian virtue in and of itself. And that's kind of what makes it unique as well. There's a worldly pursuit for self-control. Granted, the number is few, but it nonetheless exists. Socrates, consequently the Greek philosophers that followed him, stated that self-control was, was the cardinal virtue. I mean, Paul really kind of addresses this in, in his letter to the Colossians. There was some kind of stoicism or asceticism that had settled in and was threatening the church there in Colossae. This self-denial, this bodily affliction, and it was being elevated to a level where it was there's this, this Christless focus on self-deprivation in the name of self-mastery the point where it was falsely being esteemed as spiritual maturity when in actuality all it amounted to was self-promotion and a powerless show that did nothing to restrain sinful flesh we still see that kind of thing today in tibetan buddhist monks who embark upon all manner of self-depriving and its self-afflicting practices, believing such to be the pathway of attaining true virtues that really can only be attained through Jesus Christ. And that is the big difference between any worldly endeavor or self-control and the Christians. The world's motive in self-control is achieving a better you. Its motive is centered in self. 
Whereas the Christian's goal in self-control is obedience to King Jesus and self-denial and living out a life, a true life that honors Him, a, a life that speaks of His glory, a life submitted to Him, a life seeking to demonstrate He, is, he, is in tr- he truly is the Lord of our life. And yes, consequently, a byproduct of that is you, it does make a better you. It does. But I trust you see the vast difference there. Nonetheless, as, as I've said here, the, these sins listed in verses 19 through 21 openly declare a self that has run out of control. And really, we could say this about any sin that manifests itself outwardly. Solomon says in Proverbs 30.15, The leech has two daughters. Give, give. And there are three things that will not be satisfied. Four that will not say enough. What is Solomon getting at? He's addressing the unsatisfied greed of the human heart. Give, give, give. And it's never, never enough. Nothing will quench the unsatisfied thirst and idolatry and lust of the human heart. Pure self-indulgence. That's what fallen flesh demands and craves and will achieve if given the opportunity to do so. These things don't even require an un- these things don't even require a regenerate heart to understand to recognize we all know self-control to be a serious human problem both individually and abroad all of our consciences bear witness to this highlighting this reality are our famous sayings famous sayings that have become everyday language in our culture in recent decades you know, when Nancy, Nancy Reagan was standing before... How, how many of you know who Nancy Reagan is? Okay. <laughs> Almost half. <laughs> she was the wife of President Ronald Reagan. Probably the last true gentleman and man of integrity to occupy the White House as a president which is why he's won every single state in the union except for the state of his opponent. I don't see that ever happening again. Anyway, the, the early 80s, they were days where there was this great concern in, in our country over drug use. Particularly the rise of it in the teenage population. Sadly, I was part of that. Post the hippie revolution. Oh, brethren, for that to be the primary problem in our country right now. You know, Lydia and I go to vote for this proposal A. I usually, you know, I don't talk about politics from, from the pulpit. But how atrocious that this city would have a proposal to suggest we overlook, oh, $750 worth of stealing and let's, let's, let's legalize marijuana and abortion. I mean, that's, this is where we're at. That that would even be a proposal is atrocious. God, have mercy on us. I mean, we're under the judgment of God. There's no question about it. 
In fact, here Nancy Reagan was dealing with drug problem, and here we are today, we're prescribing drugs that cause addiction and destroy people's lives. That's how far we've come. But, but this drug problem was a big topic of discussion, and, and Nancy was addressing some teenagers at a school, and there was a young lady who said, what should I say if someone offers me drugs? And she says these famous three words, just say no. And those three words took off like wildfire and suddenly became the clarion call or the, or the slogan for the entire country's campaign against adolescent drug use. Just say no. And you know what? Sadly, Nancy Reagan has better sin-destroying counsel than most evangelical pastors of our day. Just say no, Christian. Just say no. And it became such a familiar saying that people were using it for other purposes, other addictions, other areas. Other areas where no needed to mean just that. No. And of course, on the flip side of that, Nike comes along a few years later and they speak to our culture branding the slogan, Just do it. Why have those slogans survived their time and continue to be oft-repeated phrases used by the masses? I'll tell you why. Because human beings find it extremely difficult to motivate themselves to do what they know they ought to do where their flesh doesn't want to do it. And they equally find it incredibly difficult to say no to which their flesh says yes. These slogans serve to highlight the heart of the human problem, the human dilemma. And it is the heart. The heart itself. What devastating effects sin has brought upon the human heart. I'm not talking about this physical organ that's beating in our chest right now. I'm talking about that central core part of a person. Their mind, their intellect, their will. The seed of all their thoughts and emotions and desires. Sin has infected and corrupted it. Corrupted it all. Jeremiah, speaking of the unregenerate heart, he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can even know it? Piper calls it a factory for idols. A factory where idols are manufactured. A factory that fabricates little gods out of the very things flesh finds pleasure in. However, we don't, we don't want to be so foolish as to think that idolatry in the heart is solely an unregenerate heart issue. The evil that gets expressed in this world and that takes place internally and externally in your life and my life comes from a sin-impacted heart. Jesus said it as clear as it can be said. For out of the heart, comes evil, right? Yes, yes, Christians have been given a new heart. That's true. 
One that has new life and is responsive to and capable of actually pleasing God. But it's a new heart that's nonetheless attached to this fallen flesh of ours. We still have an enemy, brethren, opposing the work of God in us. You see, God, is, God has he's made us something that we're becoming. We're in this process of becoming what we are, children of God, holy ones, sanctified ones, who are slowly being transformed by His grace day by day, more and more like the Lord Jesus. But during this process, we carry about this dark, very dark aspect of ourself that poses a great threat to the advancement of grace in our life. And if we don't take that seriously, we are doomed. We have great enemies that oppose the advancement of God's grace in our lives. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Enemies that require Spirit-filled life to defeat. You're not for a second going to wage war against any of those three on your own. It's not happening. The world The Apostle John says it this way, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, none of it comes from the Father in heaven, but it's of this world that's that's perishing and wants wants to take you with it. A world run by, as Paul calls them, the prince of the power of the air. The devil. Peter likens him to a lion prowling about seeking to actually devour people, devour their lives, destroy individuals. Brethren, he's real. He's real like a lion. The devil is a fierce predator. And he has a whole host of demons doing his bidding. Even right now as I speak. He hates Christ and He hates you if you're a Christian. Most certainly does. And listen to me, if you fail to walk in the Spirit, He's going to be all over your flesh. That's what He does. He's prowling. He's prowling around looking for weakness. Trying to identify a crack. Looking for opportunity. He deceives. He beguiles. He's crafty. He's cunning as we heard last week. He's out to destroy you and very, very capable of doing so if given the opportunity. The flesh. Brethren, our own flesh is the worst enemy of all. James says, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. You hear that? By his own desires desires you see blaming the devil for sin in our life that doesn't fly with scripture your own flesh my own flesh tempts and lures and entices to sin oh brethren you your your flesh is very capable of seizing control and ordering you to gratify its desires and you know that's true And that's why it must be put to death daily. Paul says, put to death therefore that which is earthly in you. This is a requirement. This is necessary, absolute necessary for your Christian advancement, for your growth and overcoming this sin. 
that earthly, worldly, carnal flesh that cries, give, give. And if I have it, I want more of it. That inward crave to please self, to satisfy self, to indulge self. We are a people with a lot of self-problems. Self-centeredness, self-importance, self-pity, self-deception, self-interest, self-worship. Oh my, the the worship of self is sickening. We've got self-esteem activities to boost self. We've got seminars aimed at increasing self-confidence and you know, believe in yourself, love yourself, treat yourself, pamper yourself. There's even a self magazine. So full of self. There's always room for more. Come on, let's take let's take a selfie. You know, it's just this whole we can be so consumed with self, we're utterly blind to it. You ask, you ask the average person today, what's the purpose of life? How should we each live our lives? And you know the answer you're going to get 80-90% of the time? Well, you know, I, th- I think people should just do whatever makes them happy. That's what you're going to get. You, you should seek to enjoy life and pursue the things you desire. You... you you just do you. That's the word today. And brethren, social media has amplified that philosophy and promoted self-glorification like never before. The internet is full of a self-worship fest. Just self-promotion on steroids. We seem to have very little trouble seeking to control others. But what about this monster self? The fruit of the Spirit is not control. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And the need is great. Peter warns us as Christians to abstain from the passions of our flesh. Why, Pete? Why do we have to do this? Because you see, they're waging war against your soul. Your never-dying soul. It's waging... Paul... Paul and Peter saw this to be a very serious thing. There's a real battle for rights that takes place within a Christian. Paul tells the Ephesians in Ephesians 4.22 to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. You see, there remains an element of our old self. Whatever you want to call it that remains intact and must be contended with or put off, as to use Paul's language, or it will gain control of self, which will lead to all manner of wicked indulgences in your life. You see, all addiction is a failure in self-control. So how do we, how do we overcome it? How do we control this aspect of self that seeks our own destructive path? You know what? I think it really begins with being honest about sin with ourselves. You will not overcome by self-control if you're not honest about it. And one way that takes place is deceiving ourselves 
by convincing ourselves we just really don't like that sin. Yes, as Christians, we can all buy into the slogan, love God and hate sin. But the reality is, you didn't commit it because you hate it. You didn't. You didn't commit it because you despise it. You committed it and you gave place to it because your flesh actually likes it. You chose to do what you did, and you choose to do what you do to allow the flesh to gratify and get what it wants. You, you've chosen to do that because that's what the flesh desires. And you chose to go that path and not obey and submit to the Spirit. That's what happens when sin's happening in your life. Now granted, it certainly sounds more spiritual to say, love God and hate sin, doesn't it? And yes, that should be the Christian's disposition towards sin. But brethren, don't fool yourself into thinking sin is something outside you acting against your will. Far too many people want to blame the devil, blame our circumstances, blame this, that, or the other. Just blame shift their sin or even deny it's a problem. Even fail to call it out for what it is. Overcoming sin starts with identifying it and owning it. You did it because you chose to. And you chose to because you believed in what it would provide you. This fruit of self-control has everything to do with how we think about sin and how we understand ourselves in light of it. If you don't, if you don't properly understand your relationship to sin as a Christian, you're, you're going to constantly be tripped up by your own deception. Paul writes to the Romans, he tells them, consider yourselves dead to sin. Do you consider yourself, Christian, dead to sin? And alive to God. Meaning, God has saved you. And when He saved you, your relationship with sin changed. You now possess power to overcome it. Power to control self. Whereas before you were completely enslaved to the lust of your flesh, that enslavement is over when salvation comes knocking on your door. But it requires you to properly acknowledge this reality and to actively avail yourself to the help that God provides. His truth and His Spirit. Yes, we we live in a sinful world but you as a Christian are no longer of this world. You're still obviously here. We're physically in it, right? But spiritually speaking, you've been transported from a world of absolute darkness and carried over into the kingdom of God's dear Son where it's a kingdom of light. It's a whole new realm of grace and and power and enablement. We're left here in this world so that our transformed relationship with sin might penetrate the darkness around us. Not the other way around. In fact, as Alistair Begg would say, the boat is supposed to be in the water, but the water is not supposed to be in the boat. And brethren, this touches on Our ideas of freedom in the gospel certainly does. Which which again is, is linked to thinking right about sin. The gospel does not liberate us. We can run out and commit sin willy nilly and be indifferent to the darkness that pervades our life. That's not what the gospel does. 
That's called antinomianism. That's living a law-free life. It is not Christianity. And we'll get more into that in Galatians 6, verse 2. But being set free in the Gospel does not provide us a license to do as we please. True liberty is found in the, go- it's found in the Gospel and empowers people to do what they ought to do. To do what glorifies their Savior. And empowers Christians to become what they are. And that requires a putting off. A putting to death of inward contrary desires and passions. That's not legalism. Putting off and putting to death are biblical terms and actions that are required of Christians in order to control self, in order to live lives that are pleasing to God. It's required. And so the need for self-control is clear. The need is great. And just one small example of that, if you turn to James 3, look at this passage. James is speaks very clearly about one member of our body, right? Just this one area of our body, our tongues that need significant control. James 3, in verse 6, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among many among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Wow. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. Not on their own, they can't. Why? It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Do you see James' logic? He's not saying no human being can tame the tongue so Christians can excuse evil uses of their tongue. He ends the passage here saying, these things ought not to be. We as Christians need to exercise the control of our tongues and not just give place to uttering whatever sinful passions arise within us. No, ours is to put off, to put to death, not lazily comply with sinful passions in the heat of the moment. He continues in verse 11, Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. What is the point of all these questions he's asking? He's saying that which has been cleansed and purified by the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of the Lamb, should not be pouring forth filth and impurity. No corrupt communication is to proceed out of your mouth as a Christian. And if we're walking by the Spirit, and we're in step with the Spirit, such won't be coming out. Because the Spirit produces this fruit of self-control. 
This is a call to get serious about our Christian life. Paul, Paul doesn't treat it lightly. I mean, one might think he, he would. I mean, of all people who would get a pass, certainly on how he conducts himself in life, it would be Paul, right? He's already, been, he's already been extended the favor of God. I mean, he's an apostle. He's got it made. I mean, God's favor has been, been, been granted to him. It's clear. It's evident. But brethren, God's favor does not produce carelessness. God's favor produces vigilance. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul demonstrates this vigilance. 1 Corinthians 9, after Paul declares all the ways that he gladly surrenders his rights. And he does so summing up there in verse 23, for the sake of the gospel. And in verse 24, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul is comparing the Christian life to athletes and the events in which they compete. Just like an athlete runs a race, he runs a race for one reason, to win the prize. Likewise, Christians are to run this race of the Christian life as one seeking to obtain a trophy of victory. What, what one thing is true of every serious athlete? The answer is right there in verse 25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. He's not talking about Christians. Carnal, worldly, secular athletes. They exercise self-control in all things. It's not just Christian virtue. But he's, he's appealing to them, if they can do that, what about us as Christians? That's the example. He's, you see, see, the runner, the athlete, he doesn't give place to laziness. He doesn't give place to excess. No, they eat right. They train right. They sleep right. They live in such a way as will give them the greatest advantage come that race day. They streamline their lives to become the best athlete they can possibly be so they can hit that finish line and obtain the prize. They don't sit back and presume they're going to win. They train to win. Finishing the race requires self-control. Paul is making a parallel to the spiritual life as a Christian. Paul, and Paul says, I do the same. Verse 27, I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul's saying, I exercise self-control in my life. I have my body 
and it's all of its earthly appetites under my command and my control. This body is not ruling me. Jesus Christ is ruling me. And I will beat it into submission if need be, Paul is saying here. In fact, I do. I discipline my body in order to keep it under control. Because if I can't, if I can't exercise self-control, Paul says, it doesn't matter who I am. Even though I'm the great, quote, Apostle Paul, I will be disqualified. We should really get what that says. We, we don't want to make the mistake of Paul thinking he's just saying he'll, he'll be disqualified from his ministry. That, that's not it. He's talking about qualifying for the race. Period. If you don't qualify for the race, you're not in the race. That means you're not in this Christian race, which Paul is illustrating. Paul did not presume on God's grace. He knew this fruit of self-control was essential, absolutely essential to making it to the end. Without it, it's not going to happen. You know, Demas started off good. But somewhere, yeah, somewhere, Hebrews 3 settled in upon him. Little things here and there hardened him. And before you know it, a lack of control and lust for other things, and he's gone. The man who labored shoulder to shoulder with Paul What about you? Do you share Paul's disposition about self-control in your life? Are you actively engaging in disciplined ways to achieve a greater self-control over yourself? Does your daily routine look like you're one who's running a race for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Or you just live your life in some kind of nonchalant, blasé, default mode that's just merely apathetic, contains no real game plan, no, no parameters, no purpose discipline to counter your flesh. Listen, that's a city ready to be destroyed. Proverbs 25, 8 says, 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. In that day, it's virtual suicide. In Solomon's day, to have a city with no walls around it for its protection was like an invitation for raiders to come in and have their way. No walls. No protection against evil invasion. The parallel, no self-control. No guard against evil coming in your life. No protection against temptations and the snares of fleshly passions. Well, there's, I mean, there's so much more that could be said. Uh, so much application to be made regarding the subject of self-control. I think of the words of, of Ed Welch who says that sin is a reckless consumer. And, and so saturated in a culture where excess and indulgence is so prevalent, brethren. Oh, we are faced with many a temptation. So I just want to briefly point out three areas of our lives. 
that regularly face this temptation of such excess and indulgence. Three areas that I'm convinced God has given us to prove or test our own devotion to Him. Gifts. Yes, three gifts that God gives us in specific seasons of our lives. Yes, to bless us. No question about that. But also to test what we really worship. And to expose our remaining need for Him to keep us from a proneness toward idolatry. Because that is the great threat against self-control. Idolatry. And these, and these gifts are food, sex, and money. These three gifts from God expose our hearts. They really reveal what we love most. They indicate without a shadow of a doubt your greatest passion and how you steward them. Your use of them. It, it tells the story. I mean, we may think and we may say whatever we want, but these things really give us away. What truth there is declared in the handling of these three things right here. And you might not like Tostitos, but it represents food. And my, what a hold food can have on us. You, you find that out real fast once you start fasting. People can easily be enslaved to food and drink. I always find it interesting when Christians you know, jump on their soapbox and start, start uh, pontificating about the evils of drinking alcohol in such an individual's probably not gone a day without drinking coffee for two decades. Why? Most likely because they're addicted to the caffeine. They don't even give thought to that. But boy, don't, have, don't tip that bottle here. I'm not advocating you should drink, drink alcohol. But just the hypocrisy, the blindness that we can have to our own addictions to food and drink, brethren. Let me ask you, do you control food in your life or does food control you? How, how often do you test that out? Have you tested that out? You should. Now, outside of fasting, one of the ways I discipline my body and keep it under control is by cutting off from it the very things I like to enjoy. That's not legalism. That's seeking to discipline my body for the sake of controlling self and denying its requested cravings. I'm currently on a keto diet, and so we had our last singles meeting. We had all the brethren come and sitting out there on my table. It was time we kind of have an eating fellowship time beforehand, and I don't think there was one thing on that table I could eat, <laughs> and. Uh, but my, those, those peanut butter cookies that Spencer brought were looking really good. And, um, and my flesh was crying out, feed me. The thought came, you know, just one. Not that big a deal. 
Well, I mean, why even continue on this diet thing? You're not even, I mean, the whole purpose behind it is long since past, which was true. But you know what? I wasn't going to cave and I didn't. But that's because I don't want to give place to my flesh in my life calling the shots. That's not something Christians should be in the habit of doing. If they're truly desiring the fruit of self-control to be a reality in their lives, we want to do things driven by spirit-guided principle, not just cater to whatever pleasure comes along. Oh, that's, I want that. I'm going to take it. I can have it. I want it. I'm taking it. If I can get it, it's mine. That sets up a lot of power and strength for our flesh. And brother, don't get me wrong, food is a wonderful gift. I don't know about this one, but food is a wonderful gift from God. It really is. And there are wonderful spiritual parallels that the Lord communicates to us through the pleasure of eating food. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, right? God gives us good tasting things just as a little tiny picture of how wonderful tasting He is. Oh, you put more joy in my heart than they when their when their grain and wine abound, right? There's all these pictures of scripture. They're speaking something about the, the great wonder of God. Don't get me wrong, there is a joy and gladness to be had in food and drink. But brethren, we live in a very self-indulgent age, culture. And we, we found all ways all manner of ways to cater to our fleshly cravings. And we got fast food. You can go down to that corner store over there. You can go to the vending machine. You got food deliveries galore. Uber, Amazon, let's go get it. And if you don't have it, or you got the refrigerator's full, the pantry's full. And if you're missing it, it's just a couple minutes down the road. Brethren, as, as Christians, we can't be in the habit of succumbing to whatever our flesh wants. Just because it's convenient and available doesn't mean you should, right? Just because you can doesn't mean you should. So does food control you or do you control it? To be controlled by anything, brethren, is to be brought under its power. That's idolatry. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Anything. If food enslaves you, if food controls you, you've got to do what you have to to bring it under control in your life. If that means getting rid of it, cutting something off, time away, proving out your love for Christ more than food, it's, it's a battle. You've got to be strategic about this battle of your flesh trying to overtake you in your pursuit of Christ. The same is true with money. Oh my, how this is so easy to use. Our stewardship of money reveals the treasure of our heart. There's a reason why the Bible says money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's love destroys people. It's love reveals the manner in which... It's a love revealed in how we use it. 
I mean, if I use this for godly purposes, it doesn't reveal that I love money. But if I use it just trying to consume all I can in this world, it reveals I love the money, right? You can't worship God and money. You can't worship God and mammon, things of this world and Christ. You can't hold both with each hand. It doesn't work that way. Give, give, the proverb says. We live in a day where we can obtain purchasing. We can get, get, right? Just with a quick scan, a quick swipe. I type in, in a few numbers. There it is. How, how much senseless gettings do we purchase simply because of convenience? Uh, how much overtime, extra jobs are, are we doing just so we can get more or maybe keep up with our, our living beyond our means? How much extra work are we taking up to further advance the kingdom of Christ? I, I hope and trust that's happening here. How much overspending and racking up of debt do people get themselves in because they cannot say no to the lust for more? I know somebody that they just they, they, they seek to satisfy themselves by just purchasing, purchasing, purchasing. Oh, it's a deal. It's a sale. Well, well no, it's not because you're, you're going into debt for it. And, and you, it's, it's not how, you don't even need it. But, but, but it was a sale. And the living room is piled up, and this room over here is piled up, just stuff. I wonder if we were to gather up all the credit card debt in this room, how much would that amount to? What are we purchasing and why? What do our bank statements say about our hearts? Some people just purchase things seeking to satisfy a hunger to get and get more. Our Bibles tell us covetousness is not to even be named among us as Christians. Paul calls it idolatry in, in, in Colossians 3.5. Uh, you can't, if you can't control a Christ-honoring use of a credit card, it's got to go, brethren. This is your soul. Nothing between our soul and the Savior. These things matter. God's not going to compete with our affections. Our affections need to be set directly on Christ and Christ alone. And if they're not, something's missing. Something's missing. And the same is true for sex. I use this, but how often, how often that comes up in the front-end list of sins that are listed in Scripture. And like food, it's a wonderful gift from God in its proper place. The problem is our flesh cares nothing about the proper place. It wants what it craves, and it wants it now. And I'll tell you what, without self-control, the battle for lust is utterly hopeless. How much do we exhibit Jesus Christ to be our treasure, to be our all in all by how we steward this area of sex in our lives? And really, when it comes to phones, this, is, this can be a tool of idolatry to many different outlets, right? These things can just swallow up our minds and our time. Time wasters. We can, we can wax eloquent 
with our theology. We can pour ourselves out for other people. We can be diligent to make all the meetings. We can possess all kinds of positive traits and say all kinds of kind things and helpful things and do things. and All those things can be true. And yet we can be guilty of turning God's gifts into idolatrous bondage. Full of excesses. And explaining it away, of course. Well, let's wrap up looking at Titus chapter 2. Briefly. Our efforts to attain this fruit and our efforts to put off the deeds of the flesh, they can never be accomplished, brethren, isolated from the contemplation of Jesus Christ. Never. It's a vain effort. It must flow from Christ. In our adoration of Him, in our assessed preciousness and value of Him, seeking self-control independent of God's glorious grace and His glorious person, it's it's really no different than what lost uh, 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 monks do, Buddhist monks. The putting off and putting on of our lives requires Jesus Christ to be the preoccupation of our lives. Titus 2, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all, training us or teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for this blessed hope, the, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. You see, Nancy Reagan's just say no doesn't work. It won't work. Why? Because it's missing the most crucial factor that empowers the ability to say no. Christ. See, Paul can turn to us and he can say, Christian, just say no. Because the ability to say, just say no or renounce, as it says here, renounce ungodliness is rooted in the grace of God that is found and provided in Jesus Christ. That is the difference maker. The grace of God, brethren. We've been brought into this thing called the grace of God. It's just a packed phrase in Scripture. It refers to God's unmerited favor and benevolence toward us in Christ and how He has dealt with us and how He he continues to deal with us. Certainly not according to our sin. Inclusive in that grace is the transfer of Jesus Christ's power to us that enables us to live the kind of life He's called us to live. We see that here. It's a grace that teaches us how to live. Paul says it there. It teaches us or trains us to renounce ungodly and worldly passions and to live out a self-controlled life in this present age, in the midst of darkness, in the midst of an age that is full of opposition and sinfulness. Having brought salvation to us and liberating us from ourselves, this grace, brethren, teaches us to live for Him in His glory right now. How? How does it do that? Notice the sentence doesn't end after the words present age. The motivation and power to put to death or renounce ungodly passions is found in the empowered reality of the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, that's how I memorize it in the King James. 
Self-control comes through the contemplation of Christ's accomplishment and Christ's faithfulness and Christ's most certain return. Christian, you are well equipped in putting to death the deep flesh because you have a Savior who is thoroughly invested in, in purifying for Himself a people for His own possession. His grace is sufficient for this purifying process of renouncing and putting to death. He doesn't call His people to do things that He doesn't equip them to do and enable them to do. Yes, we we have this residual sin, these sinful passions and cravings. That's true. But you also have the resurrected reigning Christ and the power of God's Spirit within you, Christian. Your sinful cravings might run very deep, but they're no match for the grace of God, whose grace is sufficient to bear you up under all of them. That doesn't mean you kick up your heels in the lazy boy of your spiritual life. It means you're properly equipped and empowered by God to engage this battle and withstand your own flesh. To actually, to actually renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Not outside. Ungodliness and worldly passions that rise up within. You are empowered and enabled by God to renounce it. To control them by the Spirit's power. Not your own power, but the Spirit's power. It's kind of like, just like Israel, right? God promises Israel the land. And, and listen to me. If God promises something, it's guaranteed, Right? It was absolutely guaranteed they were going to get the land. But it just wasn't, it just didn't float in there and there it was. They had to obtain the land. They had to conquer and fight and slay their enemies. It's the same for us, brethren. We must take up arms against our flesh and let our flesh know and remind our flesh that it will not rule over us. There is a fighting that must take place. This is no thing, this is no matter for indifference. Laziness doesn't fit into the Christian life. And this fighting finds its power and strength in him who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Paul is providing here an aid to our own self-control. Meditating upon the, the certain truth of Jesus Christ. It, it's, what, it's what Evan taught in the first hour. The certainty. The highly exalted Son of God. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. Oh, that's when it's all going to matter. That, there is a day when that's actually going to happen. And there's a certainty to that. This battle with sin, though it's a difficult one, it will soon be over. Because Jesus is coming back. I mean, think about how, how did Jesus maintain self-control throughout His earthly pilgrimage? Yes, He didn't have sin, but He nonetheless had to face all the wicked and sinfulness. That, that would have been difficult, right? What you created and what it turned into. You know what? He was driven by the pleasure of His Father, of pleasing His Father doing what He did for His Father's glory. And he was, he was driven by this reality too for the joy that was set before Him. 
Brethren, we should likewise be motivated and enabled by the same for the pleasing smile of God upon our life. Doing what's pleasing in His sight. That should be a motivation for, for us and for the joy that's set before us because there is a full and final deliverance from sin and its presence that is coming. It's guaranteed. Just as it was guaranteed for Israel to get that land, it was guaranteed for us to arrive at that eternal land and be forever separated from this flesh in its opposition to God. You see, knowing that there's an end in sight, this this blessed hope that Paul calls it. I like that. Blessed. It's a blessed hope. It, it helps. It helps us. It's kind of like you know, watching the college students preaching last Tuesday, and they're going by. They're locked in. I mean, it seemed like there was more of them than any other week. You know, they're they're it, they're pretty weary from a long semester. If you've been to school, you know that's so. Pretty fatigued from the study, ready for it to be over. But you know what? Willing to forgo sleep. Willing to do whatever it takes to prepare themselves for the finals next week. It's on the horizon. They see it. There's one week away. This thing's over. It's over. And it makes them more vigilant about their studies. See, deadlines are intended to shake off any procrastination or presumption or indifference. There is a real deadline. There is a real finish line that we're running toward. That we're going to cross when we get there. It's all over. This battle with sin. The wickedness, the evil, the darkness, it's gone. And then when we stand, when we bow that knee before Him, every moment of our life where we endured with self-control, it will be gold. It will be worth it. But every moment you failed and gave place to that, that sin, it'll be shame. You don't want that. You want, you want precious stones to survive the fire of God, Right? Precious stones. There is a real finish line, brethren, a real prize to obtain. And brethren, self-control is required to obtain it. May the Lord help us. Father, thank You that thus far You've kept us in the race. Oh, Father, we've seen... Lord, we've seen this play out in our church. It's sobering. Pulled out of the race. For this very thing, no self-control. Lord, help us. We're but weak, feeble creatures. We need Your grace. Lord, help us keep this blessed hope and this glorious appearing of our great God and Savior who's highly exalted. Who we're, Lord, we're seated at the right hand of right now. Lord, give us that vision. Give us that grace. Let that hope set before us be ever in the forefront of our mind and help us to endure and help us to be Help us, Lord, to manifest this fruit of self-control, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.